Once again, I want to say as we begin this evening how much of a pleasure it is to be here. Um, I've really enjoyed this week so far. I don't know if any of you have been edified uh, this week, but I have. I have really, really enjoyed uh, the time that I've had with you, and uh, and Christy has really enjoyed it as well, and uh, just the fellowship we have with you guys, and the, the love and the brotherhood that we find here is just really amazing, and we have really had a good time, uh, and I hope that uh, we'll have a good time tonight and that we'll be edified by being here this evening. Tonight, I want to talk about a story that I had the opportunity to study on uh, a few months back, and really, it impacted me in a pretty strong way, and I'd, and I'd like to share that with you tonight. We're going to talk about Absalom, and the title of our lesson tonight is O Absalom. And as we begin tonight, what I need to do is kind of tell you the story or the history of Absalom to kind of set the stage for our discussion tonight. And so I'll take a few minutes at the beginning of our sermon to do that. First of all, who was Absalom? Absalom was the son of David. David had a great many sons. Absalom was one of them. And there is a lot said in the Bible about Absalom and about the relationship between David and Absalom. We're going to talk about that tonight. Ammon was another son of David, and he was the stepbrother to Absalom. And there's a story in the Bible that is very ugly and unfortunate, where Ammon, one of David's sons, forced his stepsister, Tamar, to lie with him. Tamar and Absalom were brother and sister. And Absalom was not happy about what Ammon did. And we can read that story in the book of Samuel. It's, as I said, not a very pretty story, and we'll just leave it at that. But in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and in verse number 23, 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse number 23, Absalom takes revenge on Ammon after this bad occurrence with Tamar. It says there, and it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, thy servant hath sheep shearers. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, If not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him, and he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat him upon his mule and fled. And so what we have here is an ambush that is created by Absalom. He sets up a scene or a stage where he invites Amnon to come to this feast, this this time to make merry, and he tells his servants, look, I'm going to get him drunk, essentially, and whenever he's drunk, then I want you to fall upon him and kill him, and that's exactly what happens. And so Absalom has Amnon executed, his own stepbrother, because of what his stepbrother had done. Now, after this, Absalom flees to Geshur, and he does that because he is afraid of what is going to happen to him. After all, he has just killed his stepbrother, and David is his father, the king, and he's worried about what David will do to him when David finds out that Absalom has had Amnon killed. And so Absalom runs off to Geshur, and Joab, who is one of David's uh, right-hand man, so to speak, convinces David to allow Absalom to return. It's an interesting story. If you read in the Bible, we won't belabor it tonight. But Joab coaches this widow, this lady, to go into David and to, and to beg for her son's life. And through a convoluted series of persuasion, that turns into a plea for David to let Absalom come back into the land. And David eventually allows that. And what he tells Joab is he says, look, Absalom can come back into Israel, but he cannot see my face. I don't want to see him. He can come back, but I don't want to have anything to do with him. I don't want to see his face. And so that's what happens. Absalom comes back into the land, and he lives, but he doesn't see David because David is upset about what Absalom has done. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, and in verse number 1, 
2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse number one, we read about a rebellion that Absalom begins. Now, before we read about this, I need to tell you some things about Absalom that we're gonna skip over, but it were important. Absalom and I had a lot in common. And what I mean by that is Absalom was incredibly handsome, apparently. Um, it says that he was without blemish, head to toe, and he had a lot of hair. I mean, just this hair that was amazing. It says that they kept cutting his hair, and when they'd cut his hair, they'd weigh it because it was so, I just cut mine. That's why I don't have any right now. But there's a big, they had bags full of Absalom's hair. I don't know how wonderful this guy was, but apparently he was something to behold because all the people thought he was just amazingly handsome without any blemish, and he kept cutting his hair, and people kept bagging it because it was so, I guess, of great quality. And so you've got this, a strikingly handsome guy who has a beef against his father because of everything that's done. And we begin to read in 2 Samuel chapter 15 about a rebellion that Absalom begins to foment. And it says, and it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, of what city art thou? And he said, thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, see, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. And Absalom said, moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. So Absalom's sitting at the gate, and he's catching people as they're coming in to, to you know, sue for some wrong that's been committed to him. And Absalom kind of pulls them aside and says, tell me about your case. And they would tell him about his case, and Absalom would go, whoa, that's a really good case. Oh, I wish I were the judge, because if I was the judge, I could do righteousness and judgment. And people began to listen to this, and Absalom began to kind of convert the hearts of those around him or to him instead of to David. And so in, in verse number uh, five, it says, and it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He's beginning to turn everybody to him. In verse seven, it says, and it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said unto the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode in Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord shall bring me again into, in, indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said unto him, go in peace. So we arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, even from Gilo, which he offered, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. So Absalom here foments a rebellion. He begins to turn everybody's hearts against David and to him. And then he goes and he tells David, hey, I need to go pay a vow can I go to Hebron because I made this vow and I need to get out of here and I'll come back? And David says, sure, go pay your vow. And while he's doing that, um, uh, he says to everybody, there's a conspiracy, send spies throughout the land. And he says, look, while I'm out, we're gonna declare me king and everybody's gonna say that I'm king and we'll run David out of town. That's essentially what happens. And so that's indeed what occurs. They, run, uh, the, the, they declare Absalom to be king. Now, as Absalom comes to, he then turns around and comes to Jerusalem to take his throne. And when he does that, David runs. David talks to his counselors and says, look, I can't withstand him. And there's going to be a lot of bloodshed and we need to get out of here. And so the Bible says that David began to flee Jerusalem with all of his people and followers and they begin to run out of Jerusalem. And there's a story about that that's very interesting. It's not really our point tonight, so we won't belabor it. But the point is, David begins to leave and runs out of Jerusalem. And Absalom is running to Jerusalem to take over the throne. Now, when he does that, he gets to Jerusalem. And one of his counselors says, here's what you need to do when you get to Jerusalem. You need to show him who's boss. And so what you're going to do is you're going to go to David's concubines. And you're going to walk into that concubine house and you're going to lie with those concubines in the sight of all Israel. And they're going to know that you have taken over David's concubines visibly. So he does this in the sight of Israel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that scene? 
Again, an ugly scene that we're not gonna belabor the details of, but that's exactly what Absalom does in the sight of Israel in a very public way. He begins to lie with David's concubines to demonstrate his dominance and his victory over David. And that's exactly what Absalom does. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 17 and in verse number one, 2 Samuel chapter 17 and verse number one, there's an interesting thing that happens as David's fleeing. As David's fleeing, he tells one of his servants, well, he actually tells two, of the high, two priests and a servant to go back to Jerusalem to be with Absalom. Now, why would he do that? Because he wanted a spy. And so he sent one of his people back to Jerusalem. He says, look, you're gonna be essentially my spy. You're gonna act like you're for Absalom, but whatever Absalom's doing, you need to try and you know, let me know and give me fair warning because David was trying to save his life as he runs. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 17 and verse number one, we pick up the story here. Absalom has now entered into David's concubines. He is now ready to go after David. And so it says, moreover, Hethophel said unto Absalom, let me now choose out 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue after David this night. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak-handed and will make him afraid and all the people that are with him shall flee. And I will smite the king only. And I will bring back all the people unto thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned. So all the people shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well and all the Israel's elders of Israel. So Ahithophel, his counselor, says, David, I got an idea. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get 12,000 warriors. We're going to go pursue after David. He's flying. He's running because he's scared. We're going to go get him. And when we get there, we're just going to kill David. We're going to kill David, get rid of him. We're going to bring back everybody. And that pleased David. He said, or pleased uh, Absalom. He says, that sounds like a good plan. Whoops, too far. And uh, so in verse number six, and when uh, it's, or verse number five, it says, then said Absalom, call now Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear likewise what he saith. Hushai is the spy. That's who David sent back uh, to uh, Absalom to be his spy and to be his eyes and ears inside Absalom's kingdom. And in verse number six, it says, and when Hushai was come to Absalom, Absalom spake unto him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken after this manner. Shall we do after his saying? If not, speak thou. And Hushai said unto Absalom, the counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men, and they be chafed in their minds, as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war, and will not lodge with the people. Behold, he is hid now in some pit, or in some other place. And it will come to pass, when some of them be overthrown at the first, that whosoever heareth it will say, there is a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is at the heart, as is the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered together unto thee, from Dan even to Beersheba, as the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that thou go to battle in thine own person. So shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found, and we will light upon him as the dew falleth on the ground. And of him and of all the men that are with him, there shall not be left as much as one. Moreover, if he be gotten into a city, then shall all Israel bring ropes to that city, and we will draw it into the river until there be not one small stone found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord hath appointed to defeat the, counsel, the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. So you can see God's hand working here. God causes Absalom to follow after Hushai's counsel. And what Hushai says is, look, don't get 12,000 men and go kill David, because here's what's going to happen. David's a good warrior, Absalom, you know that. David's strong and he's courageous, and he's probably down in some pit or some cubbyhole, and he's going to be hard to get out. And so you're going to send people in there, and invariably, whenever you send people in there to this little cubbyhole, some of your men are going to die. And when some of you men die, they're going to say, oh, look at the great slaughter of Absalom's army and the people are going to be turned against you. He said, I got a better idea. Now, of course, Hushai doesn't really believe this because he wants to save David's life. But what Hushai says is, here's what you need to do. Let's get everybody. Let's go get everybody in Israel. Let's, let's get a gigantic army as the sand of the sea, it says, and you're going to lead them personally. You need the glory, not, not a hit the fell. You, Absalom, you need the glory. And let's go and let's get this big army and we'll go after David. And we're not just going to kill David. We're going to kill everybody that's with him. We're going to kill every last one of them so that your mark as king can be made permanently and you can show once and for all your dominance over David. And of course, that appeals to Absalom's vanity a little bit. Yeah, I like that idea. Me, me, me leading a great army and defeating David myself. And so he says, I like that better. 
Ahithophel goes off and hangs himself because his counsel was rejected. That's an interesting side note to this story. But in any event, Absalom takes the counsel and begins to get this army and go after David. And so he pursues David over the Jordan River. David has run and he's crossed the Jordan River and Absalom goes after him across the Jordan River. Now, as they do that, they begin to kind of, you know, amass their armies. David camps in one place, Absalom camps in one place, and it's time for war. And so Absalom, David goes, and he's going to go to war too. And his people say, you're not going. The reason you're not going is you're too valuable, David. If they catch you, it's like 10,000 of us. And so you're going to stay here at the city where we're at, and we're going to go. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse number 5, after David says, okay, I'll stay here, he gives an instruction. And here's what he says in verse number uh, uh, 5 of chapter 18. It says there, and the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So David says, okay, I'll stay here. Y'all go to battle, but I want you to be careful. Don't kill Absalom. I want you to deal gently with him. That's the charge he gives to the three mighty men. Whoops, way too fast. Going way too fast. I got to learn how to operate the printer. I mean, the pointer. So at this point, David sends these people into battle. And this is where Absalom's vanity gets him. David's army begins to win. It's in a very heavily wooded area. And Absalom is on his horse and he sees some of David's men and he begins to try and run. And he's got these famously great, you know, locks of hair and they get wrapped up in a tree as he's running through this dense force. And he is suspended in the air by his hair. Can you imagine that? Absalom, caught by his own beautiful hair, sitting there hanging from a tree, just hanging by his hair. I worry about that a lot. It's never happened to me, but uh, maybe someday. And so what happens is one of David's men comes upon him and finds him hanging from this tree. And he looks at him. He remembers what David said. And he turns around and he goes to Joab. And he says, Joab, we found Absalom hanging from a tree. And Joab goes, well, did you kill him? And he goes, no, I didn't kill him. Did you hear what David said? David said, treat him gently. Now, Joab is an interesting character in the Bible. Joab was kind of a take care of business kind of guy. And maybe for good, maybe for bad, there's, uh, I think a lot of bad sometimes in the Bible comes out of what Joab does. And Joab says, I don't have time to hear this anymore. And he takes three arrows, goes to Absalom and sticks those arrows right in his heart, kills Absalom. Now, after he kills Absalom, they get together and one of the people that's with Joab says, I'll go tell David. And Joab says, you're not gonna go tell David, it'll kill you because you've got bad news. You don't wanna be the bearer of bad tidings. Remember the saying, don't kill the messenger? Joab was worried that David would be upset at this guy. So there's this poor guy named Cushai and he says, or this Cushite, and he says, he says, you go. So this guy goes and he runs to go tell David. And eventually the guy that wanted to go tell David goes too. And so they're both running towards David. And David's sitting at the gate. You can see David at the city gate. And he's got a watchman up at the top of the tower. And they're looking for anything that might come out of this battle. And he sees somebody running. And David says, is the guy alone? And he says, yes, he's alone. He says, then he's got news. Let's hear what news he's got. And so the first guy who really wanted to go tell David, not the Cushite, but but the one who really wanted to go tell David, shows up and David says, tell me, is Absalom alive? And this guy chickens out. He says, well, when I was, there was a lot of commotion whenever I got there and I don't know what happened. And so David says, okay, you get, stand to the side. Finally, the next guy comes in and he goes, is Absalom alive? And the guy thinking he's got good news says, I hope every enemy of David is just like Absalom. He's dead. Now, that's what they tell David. Now, here's the reason I did all that history because of the next verse. In 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse number 33, the Bible says, and the king was much moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The Bible verse there, and the word that is moved is the word regaz. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm also not a Hebrew scholar, in addition to not being a Greek scholar. That word means to quiver, tremble, or shake. 
So whenever we say that David was moved, we're not saying he was emotional. David was shaking and trembling because of the news that he had received. Have you been so grieved that you just shook? I bet some of you have. That's a deep grief. And here's David crying and shaking over the death of his son. Now, the reason I think this story is so important for us to understand and to think about is some of the things that we're gonna talk about in the rest of this lesson. You know, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear this story, I begin to question David's sanity here, right? I mean, after everything that we just heard, I mean, after all, Absalom had killed another one of David's sons. I mean, this guy was a murderer. He had assassinated one of David's sons. Not only that, but he had fomented a rebellion against David. He had taken his kingdom away by deceit. And not only that, he had entered Jerusalem. He had done what we talked about with the concubines, and he had taken over David's throne in Jerusalem in a very horrible and horrific way. It was an incredible shame to David for Absalom to do that. And then Absalom had plotted to kill David. It wasn't enough that he took his throne. Now he wanted to go after David personally and have him killed. And so he was doing that. And when Absalom was killed, he was in pursuit of David to do just that, to kill David. And so whenever Joab thrust those arrows into Absalom, it was to save David's life because Absalom was going to kill him. And yet, David says, oh, Absalom. In 2 Samuel 19, maybe this is a lot more like what we would have said back at the time, Joab goes to talk to David. David's grieving. He is beside himself. And in verse number five of 2 Samuel 19, Joab came into the house to the king and said, thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life in the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and the lives of thy concubines, and that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all we had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. You know, Joab goes to David and he kind of reads in the right act. He says, you're shaming everybody in Israel. Do you realize what Absalom was doing to you? David, he wanted to kill you. And yet we're sitting here and you're crying. And, you know, I'm starting to think that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, that you'd be happier than you are right now. And this guy was trying to kill you. And and there's probably a lot of truth to what Joab said there. And so we look at this and we kind of look at David and go, what is going on here? It doesn't make a lot of sense at first blush, but you know, a parent might understand. A parent might understand. You see, at the end of the day, Absalom was David's son. And there is something about the love of a parent for their child. And all of you who have kids know exactly what I'm talking about. And all of you who have fathers and mothers, which I think doesn't leave anybody out, you all have parents of some sort. All of you understand what that bond is like between a parent and a child. And that's what we're seeing whenever David learns of the death of Absalom. Yes, all those things happened. Yes, Absalom was a bad guy, but at the end of the day, Absalom was David's son. And we're reading about a father who is grieving the loss of his son. You know, sometimes we look at parents and, you know, they've got kids that maybe we look at them and go, oh, wow, I wonder how they're going to react to that. And yet they stick by them. And we understand it because, look, folks, no matter what your kid does, you know, they're still your kid and we love them. Now, we may have to deal with that in very different ways. We may have to be tough, but there's nothing that's going to stop us from loving them because they're our kids. And that's the way it was between David and Absalom. You know, in Luke chapter 15 and verse number 20, we have the story of the prodigal son. There's a lot of lessons that have been talked about on the, on the prodigal son. We're not going to really get into all of that tonight. But I love this verse in Luke chapter 15 and verse number 20. You remember the prodigal son goes off, he wastes all of his inheritance. He gets in a very bad way and he is sitting in a pigsty and he says, you know what? My father's servants are better off than me. Maybe I could just go back and beg for his forgiveness because I'm not worthy to be his son, but maybe he'll just let me have some food, be one of his servants. And in verse number 20, it says, and he rose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, 
His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You see, the prodigal son's dad was just like David. Yeah, the prodigal son had done a lot of bad things. The prodigal son had come to his father and said, hey, I want my inheritance right now. And then he'd take that inheritance and he wasted it shamefully, embarrassed his father with all the stuff that he had done. And yet that father was on the watchtower watching. It says he saw him while he was a great way off. You don't do that unless you're looking for your son. He saw his son coming and he didn't say, well, look who the cat drug in or look what who come to see what they can have now. Instead, what he does is he just falls on his neck and kisses him. And he does that because it's his son and he's his dad. We get some picture of how important the relationship between a father and a son is from the story of the prodigal son in the 127th Psalm and in the third and the fifth verse. The 127th Psalm and in the third through the fifth verse. The Bible says this, low children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them that they shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Talking about how great children are to parents and what a joy they bring. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and in verse number four, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and in verse number four, when the Bible talks about love, and certainly we can describe the bond between a parent and a child is a bond of love. Listen to what love is described at in 1 Peter 13. Charity or love suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in all the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Love bears a lot, and the love of a parent for a child will bear a lot. And so when we read about David walking up the stairs, shaking uncontrollably, crying, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, we're reading about the love of a parent. Now, I want you to consider for a moment God's relationship to us. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 11, Matthew chapter 7 and in verse number 11, there Jesus says this, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good gifts to them that ask him? Jesus says, look, compare the physical relationship between a father and a son or a mother and a son or a father or mother and their daughter, and then ask yourself about the relationship between God the Father and his children. If on an earthly sense, we all know how to give good gifts to our children, don't we understand that God is gonna give good gifts to us because his love is even deeper? That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. And so Jesus is drawing a direct comparison between the earthly relationship between a father and son or a mother and son or daughter and God the Father in us because see, we're children of God. In John chapter one and in verse number 12, John chapter one and in verse number 12. There the Bible says this, but as many as received him, to him gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We are his children because we have been adopted into his family. In Romans chapter eight and verse number 15, Romans chapter eight and in verse number 15, the Bible there says this, for you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, we are the children of God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter six and verse number 17, 2 Corinthians chapter six and in verse number 17, the Bible there says, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty, which puts it pretty plainly. We are the sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. And so as we read and we think about the relationship and the love that a parent has for a child, we can think about the relationship and the love that God has for us because we are his children. It's the same, only better, way better, way deeper because God loves perfectly. Now, 
In Acts chapter 13 and verse number 22, there's this writing about David. It says, and when he had removed him, he raised up unto him David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse. Listen, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. You see, there was something about David that was a copy or a little bit of an similitude of God's own heart. Now, clearly, David had lots of problems, and we're going to talk about even more of those later on in this lesson. But, God, but David, in the way that he felt, the way that David approached things was very much like God approached things. He was a man after God's own heart. Not perfect like God, for sure. Did a lot of bad things, but yet there was a lot of similarity between the way David did things and God's own heart. And so my point this evening is, as we think about David and his reaction to Absalom, I would like for us to think a little bit about God and his reaction to us and how God would react to us in various situations. The question I've got is, are we God's Absalom? I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself quite like that, but the question I have tonight is, are you Absalom to God? That's a pretty tough question. I don't think any of us want to be Absalom when it comes to our relationship with God. But sometimes I wonder what position we find ourselves in. Over in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse number one, the Bible there says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Remember when Absalom went and he killed Amnon and then he fled to Geshur and he came back and David said, I don't even want to see him. I want to be separated from him. God says the same thing to the sinner who's bound up in their sins. Our sins separate us from God. Our face is hid from God because of our sins that get in the way of of our relationship to God. And so this evening, if we have sin in our life that is not taken care of by the blood of Christ, I might suggest to you that you begin to think about yourself a little like Absalom because you're separated from your father like Absalom was separated from David. Over in Romans chapter eight and in verse number seven, Romans chapter eight and in verse number seven, The writer Paul there, writing to the Romans, says, if I can get over there. Romans 8 and verse number 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You see, if we have a mind that is carnal, if we have a mind that is consumed by sin, we are God's enemy, his enemy. Does that mean God doesn't love us? No. Just like it didn't mean David didn't love Absalom. But was Absalom David's enemy? You bet. And if we have a carnal mind, are we God's enemy? You bet. We are in opposition to God at that point. And we're a lot like Absalom if we have a carnal mind. In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse number 12, Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse number 12, the Bible there says, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. You see, whenever you and I are consumed by sin, we become aliens, strangers, no longer in Israel, kind of just like Absalom, who fled Israel to go to Geshur because he was separated from his father. We have that same separation whenever our lives are consumed or directed by carnal thoughts and by sin. And if we are in that condition tonight, we are a lot like Absalom. And that has profound ramifications for us as we think about our life. Once you think about God's view towards us as we are in that sin, in Ezekiel chapter 33 and in verse number 11, Ezekiel chapter 33 and in verse number 11, you know, you may read these verses and you may say, well, if I'm separated from God and if I'm an enemy of God and it says I'm a stranger and have no fellowship with him, then maybe God just wants me to be lost. Maybe God wants his enemy to be destroyed. Maybe God wants victory over me if I'm Absalom. Nope. Remember what David did when he sent that army off? He said, look, you deal gently with Absalom. Do not kill him. I don't want him dead. Ezekiel chapter 33 and in verse number 11. There, God says the following. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn ye, turn you from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Look, tonight, if you're Absalom in this situation, if your life is consumed by sin, if you have not yet been added to the body of Christ, or if you've been added to the body of Christ and your life has kind of been consumed again by sin and you need to turn back to God, 
Listen, God is not rooting against you because you're his enemy. You are his enemy, but God loves you, just like David loved Absalom. God has no pleasure in your death. There is no joy in him having victory over you in eternal hellfire. There is no joy in that. There's justice for sure, and God is a just God, but there is no joy for God. He has no pleasure in sending people to hell. He loves you despite everything, just like David loved Absalom, despite everything. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 9, 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse number 9, we read this verse quite a bit. The Bible there says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Who does God want to perish? You say, well, surely there's somebody, right? I mean, we can read the history books. There are bad people that have been out there. I mean, there are people who've committed genocide. There are mass murderers. There are all kinds of evil people. Surely God wanted somebody to perish. Nope, not anybody. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter who you are. God does not want you to die because you're his child. He created you, and he desperately wants a relationship with you. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, the the words of, of David remind me of the words of our Savior in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 37. Jesus goes up and he goes to a spot to overlook Jerusalem as he's about to die. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Does that sound a little bit like what David said? O Jerusalem, Was Jerusalem perfect? (laughs) No, he says here, you killed prophets. You stoned the people that were sent to you. But despite all of that, how often would I have just gathered you like a hen gathers chickens under her wings, but you just wouldn't. You just wouldn't. God loves us and is not willing that any should perish. That does not mean that God is going to save everybody, but it does mean that he loves us. The decision is ours to make about how we live our life. Now, there are some key differences. We've talked about the similarities between David and God, but there are some differences, and we need to recognize those. One is that David was partially to blame for the part that he played in this whole ugly scene. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number nine, you'll remember that part of the story of David, before we get to Absalom and what happens, is that David is up on a top one night, and he sees Bathsheba who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And he has lust in his heart and he lies with Bathsheba and he conceives a child or has a child with Bathsheba. And that displeased the Lord greatly because David had committed a horrible sin. And you know the rest. It's not just that sin, that that was bad enough. But what else happened is that David then had Uriah murdered or, or killed in battle to hide his sin. A terrible, terrible story. You see, David, when he comes to the point of Absalom, was not blameless. And listen to what Nathan the prophet tells David as he's pronouncing his guilty judgment. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and in verse number 9, it says, Wherefore thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the son, of this son. For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And that's exactly what happens. You see, we're watching the sentence of David be played out in the story of Absalom. He says, the sword's never gonna depart your house. Here's his son trying to kill him. He says, your neighbor's gonna lie with your wife. Absalom went to Jerusalem and lied with David's concubines. He did it in the sight of the son, just like Nathan said was gonna happen whenever David defied God and did what he did with Bathsheba. You see, David was not innocent. Part of what's going on with Absalom and, and part of the reason that David is going through the grief that he's going through is because David had sinned in the first place. 
and it caused this grief to come upon its own house. But you know what, God, when it comes to us, there's no blame. There is no blame. Matthew chapter five and verse number 48 says that God is perfect. He's perfect. There's not one flaw in God. He's perfect. His word is perfect. His love is perfect. His judgments are perfect. Everything about God is perfect. And so whenever we start to look at the, at, the, at the scene between David and Absalom, we can look at Absalom and say, man, Absalom's a bad guy. But you know, we can turn around to David and say, but you know, you caused part of this. When it comes to us, we can look at us and say, you know, we're sinners, but we can't look to God and say, God, you caused part of this. We can't do that because God's perfect. And so in this relationship between David and Absalom, maybe we could say they're both to blame at some level, but between us and God, there's only one way that blame goes, and it's with us. It's our sins that have separated ourselves from God. We are the reasons we're strangers from the fellowship and the covenant and the commonwealth of Israel. You know, in this, in this lament that David has about Absalom, you'll notice that he says, oh, would it have been me? I wish I would have died instead of you, Absalom. He says that. You can tell how deep his grief is. He's talking about the guy who's trying to kill him. And here's David saying, I wish I would have died instead of you. I love you so much. David wished that he could offer himself for Absalom, but he didn't get that opportunity. But you know, God did. And he actually did offer himself for us. In John chapter three and in verse number 16, you know that verse. It's a verse that we read all the time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on the cross that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but hath everlasting life. God offered Jesus. And in Romans chapter five and in verse number six, Romans chapter five and in verse number six, the Bible there says, um, well, if I can get to Romans chapter five, it says, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so David may have wished after the fact that maybe he could have offered himself for Absalom. Maybe he wishes after the fact that he wouldn't have done what he did with Bathsheba to cause all of this to happen at some level. But you know what? He didn't do those things. God did die for you. He did. He didn't wait. He died for you. That's how much he loves you. Now, as we close tonight, I want to talk about a tale of two deaths. This is not the first time that David has had to understand the grief of losing a child. You see, we talked about the story of Bathsheba, and we said that Bathsheba conceived a child. And Bathsheba gave birth to that child. And because of the sin that David and Bathsheba had committed, that child died. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and in verse number 19, we read what happens there. The child dies and the servants begin to whisper about what are they gonna tell David. David has been grieving. He's been, he, he's been just in a state of absolute grief as the child has been sick. And in verse number 19, but when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house and when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, what thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. Isn't that strange? I mean, we just read about David losing to Absalom. Now, this is a little baby. That baby had never done anything to David. It was an innocent child. It hadn't done anything. It didn't form in a rebellion. It didn't do anything to David's kingdom. Hadn't been an enemy of David. Never tried to kill David. It was just a little baby. And this baby dies. And here's David. And when he hears about the death of the baby, he gets up, he eats, he worships God. And then we flip a few more chapters over. Absalom dies. Absalom's as bad as he is. And David can hardly walk up the stairs. He's shaking and grieving, saying, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Why do we have this separate reaction to this death? Is that odd to you? You see, the next verse after he says that, when he says, why are you doing all this? 
It says there, and he said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child might live? But now he is dead. But wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Listen, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There was a critical difference about the death of that baby and the death of Absalom. You see, when that baby died, David had a confidence and an assurance that that baby was okay. He said, look, the baby's gone, but, and I can't go to him. I, he can't come back to me, but I can go to him one day. David knew that there'd be a day that he'd be reunited with his baby. So whenever the baby died, he got up and he worshiped God. Not the same thing with Absalom. You see, when Absalom died, Absalom died an enemy of David. Absalom had fomented a rebellion against the kingdom of God. Absalom slept with David's wives in the sight of all Israel. David had murder, Absalom had murder in his heart, trying to kill his father. When Absalom died, it was the worst grief that a parent can have because that child was dead and their fate was sealed. There was no more hope for Absalom. David never got the chance to try and make amends, try to bring Absalom back, try and turn Absalom's heart. See Absalom as a redeemed person, someone who could come to God and worship him again to try and restore a relationship with Absalom. All that was gone, just gone. And so that's why we see Absalom's grief or David's grief over the death of Absalom. Now folks, we can live a life. We get to choose here. You can be Absalom or you can be the baby and you get to choose. We can live a life that calls for nothing but sorrow at the end. You can be just like Absalom. You can say, you know what? Don't care how I live. I'm gonna live the way I wanna live. And we can reject God's commandments. We can carry our sin. We can carry it all around with us. And at the end, we'll be just like Absalom. God's gonna love us. He's gonna be pulling for us and wanting us to repent, to confess, and to be baptized and to be added to his kingdom. But he's not gonna force us. And if we die in that situation, if I die in that situation, you know what God's gonna say? Oh, Brent, oh, Brent, my son, my son. Why did you have to die, my son? He's gonna be brokenhearted about it because he didn't want me to die. He wanted me to live. Over in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 26, we read this verse the other day, but again, it's appropriate here. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 26, the Bible says, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. <clears throat> For we know that him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. <clears throat> you know, we can sin like we want. We can live a life like we want but there's gonna come a day when God will have vengeance. There's not gonna be pleasure in that vengeance. The reason that vengeance will be taken out is not because God hates Carrie and Carrie didn't commit, didn't commit his life to God. God hates sin and sin was in Carrie's life and Carrie didn't take care of it. Don't mean to pick on you, Carrie. And because of that, God, because he is a just God, will take vengeance. Don't confuse that with God not loving us. God loves you, he gives you free will, and he doesn't want any of us to perish. But at the end of the day, if we're not willing to name the name of God and the name of Christ, we will perish. In 2 Peter chapter three and in verse number seven, 2 Peter chapter three and in verse number seven, the Bible there says, <clears throat> but the heavens and earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There's gonna be a day when ungodly men are judged. And we can live like that, or we can live a life that can confidently look forward to a reward in heaven. You can live a life that names the name of Christ, that puts on Christ, 
and that has the blood of Christ covering your sins, you can restore that relationship between yourself and your father. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse number 6, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse number 6, listen to what Paul said as he neared the end of his life, and you tell me whether he viewed himself as an Absalom or as a baby. In 2 Timothy 4 and 6, it says, um, if I can get over to 2 Timothy, I'm in 1 Timothy. It says, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at the day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Do you think Paul was perfect? No, Paul was not perfect. Paul was an enemy of God. Does that sound familiar? Paul fomented a rebellion against God. Does that sound familiar? Paul tried to kill people who believed in God. Does that sound familiar? He sounds a lot like what Absalom was. You know what Paul did? Paul stopped being Absalom. Paul decided to come to Jesus and he lived his life for Christ. And when he did, at the end of his life, he sung a much different tune. He says, I'm ready. I am ready. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Look, folks, you can be Absalom tonight. You can be Paul and that little baby tomorrow. The choice is yours. It's how you'll react to the word of God. In the 116th Psalm and the 15th verse, the 116th Psalm and the 15th verse, the Bible says this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You see, if we die like Absalom, it'll be, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. But if we die as a saint, it'll be like David. Precious, precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. Much different reaction when we have our trust in Christ. Tonight, folks, the choice is yours. It's mine. We have to make that decision. We can learn a lot from the story of Absalom. There's a lot of parallels that we can draw. But tonight, you have to decide where you're at. Is your life okay with God? Have you named the name of Christ? Is your blood, is your life covered by the blood of Christ? If it is, God bless you and keep it that way because that means you have a relationship with God and that you are saved and that you can stand up just like Peter at the, or Paul at the end of your life and say, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. But folks, if you're here tonight and you have not yet named the name of Christ and been added to his kingdom, God is up in heaven saying, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Answer that call. Don't live your life and end it like Absalom. Turn it around. If you're here and you have not yet named the name of Christ, it takes believing that Jesus Christ, son of God, being willing to repent of our sins, being willing to confess his name before man, and then being willing to be baptized for the remission of sins. If you understand those steps and are willing to take them, we would love to help you tonight. If you'd like to know more about those steps and study about them, we'd love to study with you and explain it and help you to find the way to God so that you can become his child. Or if you're here and you need the prayers of the church for any reason, won't you please come forward while we stand and sing the song of invitation.